0: To Psalm 11. The last couple of Thursday nights, we haven't been following any particular book or pattern or series on Thursday nights. Just whatever the Lord has put on my heart. And last Thursday night as I was flying back, actually later in the afternoon from a conference in California, the Lord laid on my heart to speak about last week. What good is the church? And we did a whole message on the church and the purpose of it and its involvement in this world. And Psalm 11 is something I was reading this morning and the Lord just laid it on my heart to share it. And So we're going to do that. I'm calling this message A World Without Foundations. Or you might want to kind of bring it from last week's theme of the church and call it What Should I Do Now? And I think it's a very contemporary message. I think it's something that will give us perspective in how we should live in such a corrupt society. I think if anybody has had blinders on their eyes and think that we live in sort of a utopia or a nice place, I think most of you are beyond that now. And you see that we live in a very depraved and crooked world. And the question would be, now what? Hopefully, Psalm 11 will give us some answers. It says... In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to your soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind. This shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Let's just calm our hearts right now before the Lord and pray that our hearts would be receptive to the insights His Spirit would wish to bring us. Father, we come before You as soft clay, that You might mold our thinking and our actions by Your Holy Spirit. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would come and preside and become the teacher making real the application of this portion of Your Word to our lives. Lord, the conditions that David lived in, the conditions that we live in are so parallel. They're very similar in a national sense. And I pray that it would be the same in an individual sense, that our heart would cry out the same as David's did, and we would come to that resting place as David did. In Jesus' name, Amen. If your roof at home leaked, it wouldn't be that much of a problem to get a roofer over there, examine where the rain is coming in, patch it up, and it could be good as new. If you had an appliance in the kitchen that blew out some of the electrical plugs so that they were inoperative. Again, not a major deal. You can always get an electrician in, pull a few wires, make a few changes, and fix it. Even if a whole side of the house were to fall outward and you'd lose one entire side of your home, as horrible as that would be, as vulnerable as you would be, that still could be repaired. But if... The very slab, the foundation stone upon which that house rests, had irreversible damage. And somehow, because of the ground, had sunk or broken and you were losing it. If the foundations of that home were destroyed, in many cases, you'd be lost. You'd have to just rip the whole house out and start from the beginning. Fortunately, that doesn't happen too often to homes. Sometimes it does, but it's not that frequent. But it does more frequently happen to individuals in their lives and with nations and their history. I have always believed that history is rather cyclic. It kind of goes in cycles. Even with fads and trends. You know, I was so glad when bell bottoms were out. I thought oh, these things are the ugliest things in the world and the styles of the sixties when they faded and, and I'm glad the styles of the seventies left. The big collars, the huge paisleys, the first button undone, and a little gold chain underneath the neck, all those ugly kind of fashions. And yet, I'm sure in a few years they'll be back. History is sort of cyclic. I had a history professor who said that often quoted axiom Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to relive it. You've heard it too. Israel was that way. And David was in the midst of a nation that the foundations were rotting. It wasn't just a bad wire. It wasn't just a side of the house falling. The foundations were eroded. I'd like you, I know that we read Psalm 11, we're going to comment on it, but would you turn back to the book of Judges for just a moment? the second chapter of the book of Judges. In a few verses of chapter 2 of Judges, the entire history of Israel is sort of painted for us within a few verses. And you could call this the sin cycle. I said that history is cyclic. Israel's history also ran in cycles where they were doing good, bad, they cried out, they were doing good again. Or you could look at it this way. They began in covenant with God. They were walking with God. They sinned against God. As they sinned against God, they fell into oppression. In oppression, they cried out in repentance. Then God delivered them. And they were walking with God in covenant again. And the cycle repeats itself. seems generation after generation. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them and they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. Those are the first two sections of that cycle. Covenant, sin. They weren't happy walking with God. They wanted something more. Verse 13, "...they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asherites. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so He delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies." There's the third phase of the cycle, oppression, covenant, sin, oppression. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. In that distress, they often cried out, oh, God, please, enough is enough, deliver us. And then the next phase occurs. Then the Lord, verse 16, raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet, oh, what a horrible word to have after that. It'd be good if it just said period and they lived happily ever after. Of course, it doesn't always happen that way, does it? Yet they would not listen to their judges but played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly away in which, from the way in which their fathers walked, obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so, and when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. Because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. People talk of the dark ages. We know that as a period of actual history when men acted very narrow-mindedly, very superstitiously, very corruptly. And then we separate somehow the Dark Ages from the Age of Enlightenment. But as I read history, every age of man has been dark. Some darker than others, but always dark. What we have called enlightenment didn't last all that long. And even as we become more sophisticated, more technologically, Aware and astute and progressive, we are still finding out how capable we are of the worst atrocities. Nazi Germany. Six million Jews slaughtered in recent history. Ethnic cleansing in Bosnia. Still going on even as we have this Bible study right now. 500,000 people slaughtered in Rwanda just this last month. Oh, but we're sophisticated. We're progressive. Yeah, we're just getting better at killing and hating one another. We haven't progressed all that much. You see, a pig is still a pig. Even if you dress it up in Ralph Lauren clothes and put nice cologne on it. It's still a pig. The nature hasn't changed. Now, it's a good looking pig. It's a fashionable pig. And that pig knows how to dress and, wow, what a great looking pig. But it's a pig. The problem with the human race is not what we wear or where we live or how we get educated or who our parents are. It's the heart of man. Listen carefully once again to the words that God spoke through Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? God answers that. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the minds and I give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Now, David knew that David knows that man is corrupt and that God rewards men and nations according to their deeds. And that's what bothers David in the song, because he knows that God is just He knows that God makes a difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. And God makes a difference and he acts to judge. And David is living in the midst of a corrupt, corrupt society. Now in Psalm 11, I have, for outline purposes, divided it up into two chunks. David's problem, number one, and number two, David's perception David's problem is stated in verses 1 through 3. David's perception as he thinks through the problem and the solution is found in the second half. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? David wrote this at a very interesting, if not desperate, time in his life. You know, you could divide David's life up into three sections if you wanted to memorize it. The country, the court, and the cave. That was his early life. The early life, the country, the court, and the cave. He was grazed in the country. He raised sheep. He watched Jesse's flocks. From the country, he went to the court of King Saul where he became the personal stereo system for a very... Uh, shall we say dysfunctional, that's sort of the modern term, a nutso king. And then he fled for many years into the caves of the wilderness. The court period of David's life was the shortest period of his early life. It didn't last long. As you know, Saul was very moody. And because he was moody and he got into these weird fits of rage and anger and despondency, David was called in to play his harp, to be the musician, and music can soothe the soul like nothing else. David was a great musician, and he gave these psalms of worship to the Lord. It soothed the heart of Saul, but Saul was very unpredictable. Later on, David was sent to find out how his brothers were doing when a battle was going on with the Philistines. David brought food supplies. He saw his brothers in one of the camps approaching the battle. His brothers sort of chided him and said, what are you doing here? You come to this to watch the fun? He said, no, I came to bring you guys food and how come you guys aren't fighting? He goes, oh, well, you haven't seen Goliath yet. He's a, he's a huge, he's bigger than the NBA guys. This guy's huge and he's fierce and he mouths off to God. And so David listened to Goliath and indeed David saw that this was a huge man of great strength, a great warrior. He was decked out with the shield and the sword and the spear. And there was not a man that could match Goliath in physical stature. But you know, David was just young enough to trust God. Naive enough to say, who's this little peak squeak talking about God that way? They were good days for David. He wasn't too sophisticated to sort of, let me figure this out. Just said, you know, my God's bigger than this guy. And so he said, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine mouth off to God? How come nobody's fighting this character? Well, who's going to fight him? But you know, Saul said, whoever fights him, hefty reward. David said, I'll do it. They said, you're just a kid. Get out of here. He'll have you for a appetizer. So he went into Saul and said, I'm ready to fight this guy because he's mouthing off to God and God will fight for me. It was a great time when in faith he stepped out and the nation rallied around him. Well, he defeated Goliath. You know the story. He became a great soldier, had great honors. And Saul, because he was paranoid, decided to make David his number one soldier that he would send out on risky expeditions, hoping that David would die. But David won all the battles. And David became such a hero that a song was sung around Israel that really made Saul angry. Well, here's the lyrics. It was on the top 40 chart. Saul has slain his thousands. Oh, they like... Saul loved that part. Yeah, look at that. song. song is my name in it. It's the first verse. Second verse. But David has slain his tens of thousands. To make it worse, it was the women who sang the song. They did it publicly. That didn't do anything to bolster his macho king image that he wanted to portray to all the people. So... It just fueled his insecurity all the more. He couldn't stand David. He sought to kill David. He had already tried throwing javelins at him. He tried to throw a few more. He tried many ways to kill David. And so David had to flee from being a mighty soldier sworn to protect the king in Israel. And he had to flee and leave the place of safety now out in the wilderness, in the cave of Adullam, or out in the wilderness of Judea. And it was during this time that he writes Psalm 11. The government is corrupt. The king is corrupt. Murderers are running the show. And that's what verse 1 and 2 really are all about. It's a personal kind of a testimony. In the Lord I put my trust. In other words, uh, God, I trust you and all, but, but I have an experience, Lord, I'd like to share with you. Here's my premise. I trust you. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Lord, I trust you. And yet there's this little voice that keeps talking to me inside. Split. I'd like to just leave. Things are so corrupt. And the crime rate is so high in this city. I'd like to just leave and and flee to some little country cave, some little (laughs) town, and be... Away from it all. Maybe live off the land like Ewell Gibbons. He's in a quandary. Trust and yet he's going through a tough experience. A time of political national corruption. Terrorism reigned. If you read that portion of Israel's history, life was just disposed of so easily. The priesthood, the ministry had become corrupt. The political leadership had become corrupt. Violence reign. They shoot secretly at the upright and heart. No really good motivation. Just trying to kill David. Now, that sounds to me amazingly contemporary. The prophets foretold a time, and I wonder if it's this time, when people would be saying, peace, peace. But there wouldn't be any. You know, the bumper sticker that it's really politically correct to have on your bumpers these days, especially your old Volkswagen buses, is visualize world peace. And all these sort of bumper stickers that are printed up, and the idea is let's just really think, let's really think hard, there's a spark of good in you, if we can just trigger that good, things eventually will be good. And yet, you know as well as I know that the number one major fear of people in this country is that there is no peace or never will be. Violence. It's not safe to walk out on those streets. And that scares people. It's the number one fear in any of the polls taken. It's the fear of the future, especially when it comes to violence. We have a serious crime problem. And here's the odd thing. We incarcerate, we put into prison a higher percentage of people in our society than any other nation in the world. And yet our crime is like off the charts in comparison. In fact, the increase in violent crime since the 1960s, I'd say guess, but probably none of you would come close. 560% increase from 1960. And what's odd, the researchers are saying, is that this kind of violent crime has seemingly no motive many times. There's no reason to rebel. There's senseless killing. There's just the deep-seated anger in the lives of kids and grown-ups who were kids who never had love, but they just are enraged and they want to kill. In the District of Columbia, a 10-year-old boy was swinging a 2-year-old around and around until the 2-year-old's head was bashed in and that baby was killed. And the 10-year-old was interviewed, why did you do that? And he said, I was just having fun. Absolutely senseless stuff like this. That's not an isolated case. There are many more like it. And I would dare say it is so frequent that we're becoming desensitized to it because CNN is on every half hour on the half hour. And it keeps replaying the same stories. And pretty soon, the only thing we think is, this is bad, but boy, I hope it didn't come in my neighborhood. That's about all the sensitivity that we can eke out of us sometimes because it's just so ridiculously high people are stricken with fear. And it's easy to see why. You know, you can echo what David was feeling. Lord, I trust you, but I look around and I see the wicked shooting at the upright in heart for no reason. And and I have that little voice. Flee. I wa- Where do I go? Why is there such fear? Here's an example. A few years back, In Brooklyn, New York, a 23-year-old male by the name of Jose Suarez killed his wife and his five small children. They were found dead in in the apartment where they lived. He was arrested, taken to the police station. He didn't even admit that he even knew these people, and he was released. Captured again later that night where he confessed. He confessed to having killed all six people. The assistant district attorney was present. And because technically they didn't warn him in the beginning of his rights to have an attorney present. You have the right to have an attorney if you forfeit that right. One will be appointed. Because they didn't say that, they had to throw the case out of court. Here's the article. Suarez appeared before the Supreme Court Justice Michael Kern. According to the ruling of Earl Warren's Supreme Court... Nothing the judge could do, there was nothing the judge could do but to turn the murderer loose. Now the judge realized he had to do this, he didn't want to do it. Here's his sentiments from the case when Suarez stood before him. He said, even an animal, he made this statement at the bench, even an animal such as this one, and I think it would be insulting even the animal kingdom, must be clothed with all these safeguards. This is a very sad thing. It is repulsive. It makes any human being's blood run cold and his stomach turn to let a thing like this back out on the streets. 93% of the American population say the one thing that's on their minds right now is crime. Even though our president thinks it's health care, and even though the Congress of the United States thinks it's welfare reform, it is not. It is crime. People want safe streets to walk on. But i got to say something. I personally believe that the epidemic of crime and the hardness of hearts of the nation has gotten to such a peak that it's beyond any government control. I think we're looking down the road at anarchy. I think that a machine is started to move into place, it's gaining momentum, and people are getting really angry, and the average citizen says, you know, enough is enough. And they're starting to get really agitated. And pretty soon, because the value system has completely eroded, we'll get to that in verse 3, people are saying, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing in my own way and protect my hide. I don't care what anybody else is thinking or doing. We're heading down toward anarchy. And the government even won't be able to stop it. I, I agree with Randy Stonehill in his song. Stop the world. I want to get off. But you can't. Lord. I trust you, but you see the same things I do. And David is now faced with a choice that confronts everybody in a time of crisis, and that is, what is your refuge? How do you act when you're in the pincher up against the wall and there's guns pointing at you and the enemy's shooting at you and it's not your fault, but there's just this kind of nonsensical crime and activity all around you? Verse 3 is really the kicker. It's the heart of David's fear. And I want to elaborate on this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Can you hear the despair in David's voice as he's writing this? Lord, I trust you, but... And then, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The word foundations in Hebrew is the Hebrew word shatah, which means the pillars of state or the settled order of things. The settled order of things. The Moffat translation says, When the pillars of state are falling, what can a just man do? What David is doing is likening society, culture, to a building. As pillars. The pillars are on a foundation. And that whole structure, that whole foundation, are principles, values, absolutes that form the strength of that house. But if the foundations, the pillars, are shaken, fall down, the people in that house are doomed. What can the righteous do? That's what's happening in David's area. The throne and the kingdom are undermined by wicked men. And the very things that were put in order to protect the righteous are gone. The question is, now what do I do, God? What can the righteous do? Every nation, let's personalize it. Every individual has a foundation. Some kind of foundation. We believe something. We have some principles that we govern our lives by. What is your foundation? Really? Remember Jesus said there's two types of people. One listens to my words and does it. One listens to my words says, hey, nice message, Jesus, but doesn't do it. One obeys, one disobeys. Jesus said, that's like two people building their house. One builds it on the sand. One builds it on the rock. And when you build it on the rock... Because it's a firm foundation. When the storms of life come, the rain falls, the wind blows. That house will not fall. Oh, but the house that's built on the sand, which looks as beautiful, maybe even more beautiful. Because they didn't take the time to rest everything on a firm foundation, when the rains and the storms of life come, great will be the fall of that house. That thing's going to crash. It's going to slide down the mountain. It has no foundation. So it's a time to ask what our foundations are. And in our culture especially, Western civilization, we're at a crossroads, people. The foundations of Western society, we say, are eroding. I would say past tense have eroded for the most part. Oh, I know that there's what Nixon called the silent majority of people, but I wonder where many of them are. It's been said we live in a post-Christian era. I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with that. The foundations are destroyed. When a person gets drunk, perhaps you've noticed or you remember. Things are hard to distinguish. Lines become fuzzy. Things aren't as accurate. Tell the guy to walk a straight line. He thinks he's doing it. He's way out here. And the lines in the road become hazy and fuzzy. Tough to follow. America has become drunk because we're so obsessed with the idea of civil rights, personal civil rights, that we've forgotten the good of everybody collectively together. It's my right. What's the right of the criminal? Well, let's just get everybody's little rights lined up, right to choose. We're so drunk with the obsession of our own civil rights, the lines are hazy. I don't know if that's right or wrong, or good or bad. and We're often in the same position as Israel. Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Just listen to some of the kids talk today. They want to say something's really good. They'll say, that's bad. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, woe to you kids, you just said that. But it's reflective of the way we think. We just take our words and just reverse them. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. We are seeing such a reversal of morality. What is right and what is wrong. What is good and what is bad. It's gotten to such a perverse level even to be sanctioned at the level of the highest office of government. People say, what's left? What's left? Where's the morals? What's good? What's bad? I'll tell you who the enemy is that I see on television, according to the press. It's these narrow-minded Christians. I hear that message getting across on almost every single network. Those bad Christian people calling good evil and evil good. A poll recently found out that 67% of the American population said there's no such thing as truth. 67% said there's no such thing as truth, absolute truth sounds a lot like Pilate when Jesus stood before him. He said, what is truth?" That's the cynical approach of modern America. You say, well, that's just the world. Oh, but listen, the poll went on to show when they polled evangelical Christians who attend church regularly once a week, say they have a personal relationship with Jesus, go to prayer meetings, read the Bible. 52% of evangelical Christians said there's no such thing as the truth. Absolute truth. You know. Hello? McFly? Last year, a Gallup poll revealed that 80% of the American population believes there are no moral absolutes. You see the problem? Can you see the problem? There's no basis for law. When you take away the moral fiber that determines values, how can you break a law? What can the law... There's nothing for the law to protect, so we're constantly going to court redefining it. Well, I don't know if you really meant that. Okay, go ahead and kill that person at that age and kill the people when they're babies. And then later on, well, well, you're right. Maybe we should kill a few more. And we're just constantly reshaping and redefining it because the fiber's gone. What can the law protect? There's nothing left for it to protect. So we have a moral vacuum. And what's the result of a moral vacuum? Any historians here will tell you it's anarchy. You have a moral vacuum, you will have eventually anarchy, and you'll have kids running out in the street shooting at anything. Just going out there to shoot things because they're so pent full of anger, they have no direction. Francis Schaeffer, who wrote a great book called The Rise and Fall of Western Civilization, parallels the United States of America to ancient Rome and says Rome never fell from outside forces. Interestingly enough, it wasn't attacked from the outside. It fell because it had no moral base. And Francis Schaeffer in one little sentence said they had no ins, or they had no sufficient inward base. Their value system was not strong enough to bear up the strains of life either individually or politically. David said, God, I trust you. That's my premise in life. But I look around. And I've just been through the ringer, and I see the king, my own father-in-law, the king of the nation, the guy who's supposed to be on the throne, given all the moral orders and direction hearing from God. He's trying to kill me. And I see murderers are all throughout the land. And the foundations of my country is being destroyed. God, what can the righteous do? Good question, David. I hope you answer that. Well, he does. From David's problem now comes David's perception in verses 4 through 8. In his dilemma, David now turns to God. He's not an agnostic. He's not an atheist. He didn't go, okay, let's go here. I'll figure this thing out here. I mean, who can I, uh, who can I call? Who can I elect? What book should I read? He didn't say, "I'm the captain of my own ship, the master of my own fate." That's insanity. His foundation was God, and so he turns to God in prayer. He reflects in verse four: "The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men." The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind. This shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness and His countenance beholds the upright. couple things that David realizes. In his dilemma... He first realizes where God sits and what God sees. Where God is and what He sees. In the midst of a corrupt foundation, a corrupt nation, he realizes something about God. That God isn't on vacation in Tahiti somewhere. That God is on His throne. And He sees everything. His eyelids test the sons of men. He's aware of my predicament. He's aware of all the maladies that go on in all of the world. God is still awake important to remember that. Remember when the children of Israel were in Egypt. We covered that some months ago on Sunday night. And they cried out to God in their bondage. And Moses is standing before God. It's a touching picture. He's watching this bush burning with fire, though not consumed. And God says, Moses, I've called you. Well, God, I can't do it. Moses, I'm going to deliver these people because I've heard them groaning. I see their oppression. I am coming to deliver them. I see it. I hear it. And I'm going to do it, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to use you to do it, but I'm going to act. Now, there's a reference to the eyelids in here. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. These are called, if any of you are interested in the term, anthropomorphisms. Meaning, God is written about in language that men can understand given men-like features, men-like attributes, so that men reading this can understand it. God is transcendent. Man is finite. The only way we could ever grasp God is for God to reveal Himself in a way that men could pick up on it. And so we talk about the eyelids of God, not that God has eyelids or eyes like we have, any more than when the Bible says the wings of the Lord are stretched out, that God's flapping His wings. These are ways that paint a picture, you see. His eyelids test. Whenever you examine something closely, you bring it up, you kind of squint at it usually to get a sharp focus. The idea is that God is closely scrutinizing and examining everything that happens upon the earth. Nothing escapes His attention. Oh, now we have a problem. Because this is precisely where the unbeliever will fault God. All right. If God knows everything and God sees what's happening in Rwanda and Bosnia and saw Nazi Germany, what's He doing up there? Why didn't He stop it? If God's so powerful, I want to see Him work. You talk about a God of love. You preach about a God of love. I don't see Him. All these people are starving. All these babies are dying. They're starving to death in Rwanda, in Sudan, in Somalia. Where is God in Somalia? Where is God in Sudan? How can you accuse God? As an American, of God not standing up for the little babies in Somalia when the number one best-selling books in our country are diet books? It seems a little incongruent, doesn't it? Since there's enough food on planet Earth, it's told us that every human being every day could have 3,000 calories worth. The problem isn't God. The problem is men hoard it. Men are irresponsible. We have a free choice. Part of love is that God gives us a free choice. And in that freedom of choice, instead of the world sharing, we hoard. And then we blame God for it. Boy, how could you Hey, Instead of blaming God, become part of the solution. Turn your life over to Him. Be thrust out into a hurting world in the name of Jesus Christ to preach the Gospel, to heal the hearts of men, to feed their bodies, to clothe them, Be a part of the solution. Give your life to Him and go out in the name of the Lord and help minister instead of pointing the fist or shaking the fist. It's actually an escapist to say, I blew it, then I'll blame God. Man is evil. Man has chosen to rebel against God, suffering the consequences in a fallen world. Now I'm going to blame God for it. God is a God of love and part of love is choice that involves always consequence. Else it would not be love As a proper definition. It's a consequence of the freedom God has given us. Okay, first of all, he realizes God's sitting on the throne. He sees it all. He's in control in the sense of the sovereignty of God. But then look at verse 5 and 6. David realizes that God can use the shaking. That God can use the shaking of the foundations, the hassles of the world, the pain that goes on. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Again, painting a picture of the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind. This shall be the portion of their cup. Notice the great dividing line between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unbeliever sees no purpose at all in anything that is not pleasant. Anything that doesn't make him smile, anything that doesn't give him a thrill, anything that is painful at all, he sees no purpose in it. He wants to get rid of it. The believer, however, has learned that even when foundations shake and unrighteous people shoot arrows at me, that God will use that to refine me. He tests me. The word is to approve so that at the other end of the test, I come out stronger and better than at the beginning. The unbeliever says, oh, this is haywire. This world's so out of control. The believer says, no, it looks out of control because of the rebellion of men. But I see that God is on the throne. His eyes see everything. And for a believer, he's going to use that to test me. But for the unbeliever, all this pain is simply a preview of coming attractions. Judgment. Fire. Brimstone. For an unbeliever, this is the closest they're going to get to heaven. They think it's bad now. Oh, it's not, not at all compared to the future. Oh, but for the believer. This is the worst it'll ever get. The judgment is coming. God is testing the righteous. And God is refining me in the process. It's been said adversity is the diamond dust that God uses to polish His jewels. He polishes us. Verses, the end of verse 5 and 6 talk about the judgment for the unbeliever. You know, I often hear, I know you hear it too, The smart aleck unbeliever. The non-Christian. Who acts like, I don't need a crutch. And when you talk about eternity, they often say, oh, hey, I'm looking forward to hell. All the parties go on there. All my friends are going to be there and I'm going to be with them. Interesting that Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person in the Bible. He never mentioned partying. Never talked about keggers. Great times, laughing times. But always things like wailing, gnashing of teeth. Great destruction, great mourning. And he never talked about it in any other way than sadness of heart for those who would be going there. You say, Ah, yeah, but I don't believe that. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe that you could have a God who loves people and at the same time a hell. Well, look at it this way. Did you read the paper today? Or this week? Did you read about criminals and people who were shot and people who senselessly committed crimes and atrocities in Rwanda? Do you ever read those things and just your blood curls? Curdles, I should say, not curls. Your toenails curl, but your blood curdles. You get angry. You hear what Adolf Hitler did, you think, what a madman. You hear what guys in Somalia are doing, the warlords, you think, there's got to be judgment. Well, think how God feels millions of times more since he sees it all. He didn't read one newspaper. He knows what's going on worldwide in every day of history. Now, for God to be loving, I think you will agree, God has to be just. Or He's not loving. So can you picture God, as some do, sort of sitting with a big white beard and sort of this benevolent grandpa and, oh, it's Judgment Day. Oh, Adolf! Hitler! Hey, I know you killed a few people at Auschwitz, but you know what? You were just... Dysfunctional. It's okay. I understand. Everybody has environmental problems. Come on in. You'd say, that's not loving. That's amoral. For there to be love, God must judge. The question is, how can a God of love allow a hell to exist? How can He not? God sees it all. God must, to be loving, also be just. David recognizes that. We'll close with verse 7, because that's where David closes. He rests on this foundation, and notice it. For the Lord is righteous, categorical statement. He begins by saying, I trust you, but, here's his ending. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Now David is resting on a firm foundation. He realizes that it's bad now. He's the recipient of nonsensical violence from the throne, from the king. The foundations are destroyed. The political environment has gone to pot. But he realizes that God sees all. God is at work. God is sifting. God is refining him. God will eventually judge the world for their sins. So he doesn't have to worry about it because God is righteous. And he rests on the firm foundation. Lord, you're righteous and you love righteousness. What is our attitude to be when we see the foundation shake? Do we shake back? Go right! this is an atrocity. Or do we run and hide? Or do we say, let's storm the White House by force. Let's throw the guy out. Let's throw everybody out except us Christians. Or do we say, no, let's just sit back and do nothing? Those are very important questions. David didn't do nothing. He just didn't sit around and go, oh, well, you know. Sovereignty, I don't have to be involved. Boy, he got involved, didn't he? He became the king. You can't get any more political than that. He became the king of the nation. God appointed him as such, and he brought in righteousness until his own heart was lifted up. And I gotta say, I admire the people that, like Daniel, like David, these days God is raising up. Many of, in this fellowship, both Republicans and Democrats, in their party, for sheriff, for Congress, for lieutenant governor. And we just pray that God will raise you up. David got involved. He didn't shake his fist. He didn't run and hide. But I want you to notice a word, and we'll close with this word. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. What's the solution as Christians to the dilemma of our society with its violence, with its corruption, with the loss of moral fiber? The solution is righteousness. God loves righteousness. No, 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 no. That's not it. The solution is build more prisons. It will not work. I don't care how many prisons you build. I've heard the news reports of what they're. It won't work. The problem is the inside of man. It's the heart of man. Where he has lost the morality. Because the value system has gone. There's a moral breakdown. The problem is the heart. It's deceitfully wicked. Above all else. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ changes a man inwardly, morally, that gives him a set of absolutes to build his house upon. Well, I don't know if I believe that. I think we can change the world through just good old bumper sticker philosophy and hard work. Well, they've been doing it for a few thousand years, it's not working. God loves righteousness. We live in a fallen world, folks. Fallen from God's standard. And the world seems to love to demonstrate its fallenness more openly every day. That indeed it is fallen. But Jesus gave us a task in that. He said it's going to be hard. They're going to persecute you. They're going to take you from synagogue to synagogue, place to place. Your family will hate you. But we have a task that Jesus gave us. And woe to the Christian who diverts from his task of living as God would have us to live and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the church, preach the gospel, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. Don't stir from that mandate. Don't go. Don't veer. That's the mandate he gave to us. Chuck Colson, a man known for his politics under Richard Nixon, gave a speech recently to the national religious broadcasters in Washington, D.C. I have the transcript of his speech. I found it compelling, to say the least. Toward the end of his speech, he said, What do we do? How do we rescue our culture? Well, I'm going to shock you. We don't. Our job is not to rescue the culture. The single biggest mistake the church has ever made through the centuries is that whenever it thought its task was to rescue the culture, it became politicized. Whether it's liberation theology or movements on the right or left, it makes no difference. Our job is not to rescue the culture. Our job is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples, to be the church, to be faithful to God's holy word, to live his word, to make men and women holy and righteous as a part of a holy, righteous community, to proclaim truth to society. To invade society is salt and light. When people see Christians moved by their love for God and out of gratitude to God for what He has done in their lives, then they witness the kingdom of God. Then the culture is rescued. How do we rescue the culture? By being what God has called us to be, His people. It's a very important statement. Don't misunderstand it. He's not saying... Don't get involved in the political process. No, he encourages that to the right degree. But as salt and light. Not like, if I get elected or if they get elected. No, it's I'm going to be in this position because I believe that there is a moral base this country started with and I want to bring it back, but as salt and light by proclaiming the Gospel. Didn't Paul say, be not overcome with evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. The Lord loves Righteousness, cling to the truth it's going to get bad but christian for you it's only going to get better get involved work do the lord's work it's daytime the night is coming jesus said when no one can work there was a uh, story that came out of australia two men graduated from high school good friends Went in different directions in life. One became a judge in the magistrate court of Australia. The other became a banker. The banker became corrupt. He embezzled a large sum of money, was taken to court. It was publicized as a big deal because the banker who embezzled the money was to stand before his friend of a lifetime who was the judge. The press speculated that the judge will probably let the guy get off easily. He'll be soft on him because they're good old friends. The day arrived, the banker stood before the magistrate in court, and the judge leveled the highest, harshest possible sentence he could on his friend. And there was a gasp that went up. In all the courtroom, they didn't expect this. Then the judge stood up, took off his robe, walked around, put his arm around his friend, said, I just gave you the harshest punishment. is permissible by law. But I want you to know something. I sold one of my homes take money out of my savings account and I paid your bill. He was both loving and just. He was just by giving him the sentence. He was loving by paying it. He couldn't overlook the crime, but he couldn't overlook his friend. God doesn't overlook the sin of this world. He'll judge. He's just. But God doesn't want to overlook you. He loves you. He wants to rescue you in your heart. Sin is the problem. We talk about the wickedness of the world. It's sin that's the problem. It's the heart of man. And Jesus forgives a person of their sin, changes them, and then says, All right, shoves them out. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to every living creature. Teach them to observe whatever I've commanded you. And that Christian starts changing other people. And their world starts changing, their neighborhood starts changing, their family starts changing. It's won by love. Don't be overcome with evil. Don't shake your fist at the darkness. Don't curse the darkness. Turn on the light. Father, we thank You for the time of meditation upon Your Word. Looking at Psalm 11 today, my heart just burned with some of these kinds of things. The predicament of David. The perspective of David as he saw his world around him. and Where You sit in all of this and what's coming in the future for all of this. Lord, we thank You for the freedom of choice You've given to us as human beings, but yet we see the frightening consequences as that is meted out to its full extent. Lord, we read about it all the time. We're inundated with it constantly. The crime rate is so high, it's just absolutely inconceivable. And yet, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just sit around, but we would become involved. But that our involvement would not only be something of the superficial nature, but it would reach deep within our hearts that we would be motivated to be salt and light, to live righteousness, to win others to the Gospel. Father, we say a special prayer right now for some of those in our flock. We think of Dolores, Lord, running for Congress, and Greg as Lieutenant Governor running for it. Some of the others... Uh, I think Richard Baca for Sheriff. Some Democrats, some Republican. But Lord, how You put it within their hearts as they see eroding foundations to become a part of the process, to be salt and light, to get involved, because they know that the only hope is the Gospel. Give them Your strength, O Lord. Raise them up. And raise us up, Lord. I pray that we would see the tremendous potential in such darkness to shine brightly. And finally, Lord, we ask for the souls of those who have come tonight. Who are part of that evil, dark system. And their heart is crying out for something fresh. Their heart, Lord, is they are weeping inside because they haven't experienced love and forgiveness. And feeling a part of a family. Tonight, Lord, is a time where You're drawing them in and they're seeing, You're right, the solution is only Jesus. Whether it's a message from the puppets or a message from a preacher, it's still all out of Your Word. Jesus is the solution. I pray that You bring that to hearts right now. And if you're here tonight, you'd like to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and experience a load of guilt removed, a fresh start Peace that you've never experienced or thought possible to experience. And then the excitement of being used by God in the midst of a society that's eroding. Tonight's the night to give your life to Jesus Christ. Would you like to do that? Would you like to turn from your sins and turn to Him? If so, then would you raise your hand right now? Say, Skip, here's my hand. Would you pray for me? I want to give my life to Jesus Christ tonight. Raise your hand up in the air so that I can see your hand and pray for you before we close. God bless you guys over here to the left. Thank you. Anyone else? Raise your hand up high, right over here. All right. God bless you. Anybody else? Back there, I see your hand, ma'am. Is the Lord speaking? To anybody else? If so, acknowledge that right now. God bless you. Father, we want to thank You for the way Your Spirit moves within hearts of people, that silent revolution of the heart. We know, Lord, that that's going to bring a great revolution in their life. And You're going to use them to touch their families and their neighborhoods. Maybe they can't conceive of that yet, but that's on the horizon for them. Wherever You are sitting, those who have raised their hands, I want you to ask the Lord into your heart. I want you to talk to Him right now. Say these words right now after me, whether out loud or in your heart. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And right now I repent of my sins. I change. I turn from what I know is wrong. I turn from following my own ways, my own desires. I commit my life to You, Lord Jesus. I'm going to follow You, Lord, the rest of my life. Take me right now. I'm Yours. Show me how to please you, show me how to live in righteousness. I can't do it on my own. Lord, you know I failed. So Lord, pick me up, forgive me, dust me off, and set me on your path in Jesus.